0: Today, I'm speaking with Paul Niehaus. Paul is an economist at UC San Diego and entrepreneur working to end extreme poverty.
1: Giving cash should be the standard which other poverty programs are compared to.
0: Let's talk about the empirical evidence a bit more. So... Unconditional cash transfers have been studied empirically many times in a range of contexts, um, as you've noted. Yeah, can you summarize what we know about the return on investment recipients get?
1: Yeah, there are certainly cases you can pick out where, you know, a large share of the money got invested in some sort of asset and business got better and the return on capital in that business was you know, maybe 20% per year or 30% or even up to 50%. So there are certainly cases like that where in a sort of very narrow financial sense, we can say, well, we've learned from this that people have access to high return investments and it's great that we're able to finance them. But I would actually push back a little bit. I think about that instinct of trying to kind of put everything into one number. sure. Uh, because I think once you get into the reality of how diverse life is, uh, it's too complicated for that.
0: Yeah, it must be frustrating that, well, it seems like there are all these um, randomized control trials on a bunch of interventions like this, including unconditional cash transfers. And many of them, in some ways, have it easy. They're tracking the effect of bed nets on malaria. And it's pretty easy to measure uh, malaria, at least relative to how difficult it seems to be to measure. How do people spend money when there are dozens, hundreds, in some sense, an infinite number of potential options for them. And how do you measure the benefit they get from that?
1: And yeah, there are all these, these these sort of knock-on things, like, you know, you see impacts on mental health, or recently there have been papers that found reductions in rates of suicide or rates of all-cause mortality. And so you also think about that, you know, is that a separate thing that I need to value separately, or is that the result of all these other things that I was just talking about? So, so I think it's really, really hard. And actually, I think that the way economists have traditionally thought about it, which to me makes more sense, is to say... We're actually going to think of this as like the numeraire, right? The value to giving someone a dollar is a dollar. And then we're going to use that as a reference point in comparison to other things and say, well, relative to that, how great is a bed net or deworming or any of these other things we want to think about?
0: Yeah, I see. And at least part of the thinking behind Give Directly is like in surprisingly many cases, the value of giving someone something that you've decided in advance might be best for them, that costs a dollar, might actually be less than a dollar because people have such different needs and it's hard for us living in other countries to predict them.
1: That's the thing we want to watch out for. And, and the issue there, maybe we get into this, is that in the sort of aid or philanthropic system, there isn't any built-in feedback loop that prevents us from doing that, right? So, you know, think about it by comparison to a commercial business If I'm trying to sell something for a dollar and people value it at less than a dollar, nobody buys it. And I learn quickly, this isn't working, right? I don't have product market fit. In the philanthropic world, if it costs you a dollar to produce something and people value it at less than a dollar, they're going to say, oh, thank you. You know, this is better than nothing. And so you don't get that feedback loop of people telling you, hey, there's something better that you could have done with your money. So we have to be very intentional about building that in. Why Cash Dramatically Overperformed a USAID Unemployment Program?
0: I guess I'm still inclined to be surprised and impressed. Um, Given that this is like a best-in-class program, it's like the best way USAID knows how to improve underemployment and still giving cash directly is better. What is it about the way the sausage gets made that makes this not super surprising to people working on this on the ground?
1: Well, I think, I think there are sort of three things to highlight. One is the sort of absence of automatic feedback that I mentioned earlier, Right, that I think it's fundamentally difficult when you're doing philanthropic stuff and you don't have customers that can tell you, hey, this isn't that great actually, right, to learn. Two is all of the complexity that comes with being a big multinational bureaucratic organization, right? And that's obviously not unique to USAID or to any big organization, but there's all sorts of stuff and baggage in terms of decision-making that comes with that. But I think the, the third thing is that there are different categories of problem that it's helpful to distinguish. And those are you know what economists would call sort of private good versus public good problems. So me getting a job and earning a living is a very relevant problem to me. And I'm going to do what I can to do that. And I may not do it, you know, I may face constraints that make it hard, or I may make mistakes or not understand certain things, all of that sort of thing. But, like, we should generally have the expectation people are going to be pretty motivated to try to figure that out on their own, at least to some extent. And so I think that's the sort of problem where to come in as an outsider and have a really disproportionate impact is going to be relatively hard. Then there are problems like preventing everybody in my community from getting malaria, right? Right. Where you know I have a motivation to not get sick myself, but I really don't have sort of a strong motivation, or perhaps strong enough motivation to solve everybody else's problem for them, right? Or even taking it a step further, right? Sort of doing the innovation, the R&D to discover a cure for malaria, a way to prevent it at scale. That's a public good issue, right? Where one person's actions have much broader ramifications, and so that's a place where you'd expect coming in as an outsider, like yeah, maybe we can actually have a really disproportionate impact because no one person on their own is going to be as motivated. To solve the problem, right, and so you know, to me, these sort of employment and livelihood generation problems, those are really private good problems, and so I think that's generally going to be a tough area for us to make outsized progress relative to public goods issues. And I think that's why, when you look at the things that GiveWell has recommended over the years historically, that they think do do better than cash transfers, they almost always have. You know, most of them have this sort of uh, you know public health infectious disease uh, flavor to them. Giving cash can boost economic growth.
0: So the headline result is that for every $1 spent on cash transfers, there's a 2.5 multiplier effect. Can you explain exactly what a multiplier means here?
1: Yeah, so it's a very simple concept. All it means is if we measure GDP, essentially, sort of the aggregate output of this economy, how much did GDP go up for every dollar that we gave people? And so a one would be, you know, sort of people spent the money and nothing else happened. A 2.5 here means that for every dollar that we put in, economic output in the region expanded by two and a half dollars.
0: Okay, and again, um, I studied a bit of economics, but not loads of economics. So it's basically, you know, if I try to make it really concrete, it's like you give someone one dollar and the fact that they then spend that dollar ends up somehow generating two point five dollars in the economy because of something like it enables someone to do a bit more work, which then allows them to. I guess create more goods, and those goods have value and are purchased. And over time, uh, you get a basically two dollars fifty of extra of extra value. Is that the basic thing?
1: That's the basic thing. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. I understand what a multiplier is. Can you help me make intuitive the the number two point five? Is that really big? Is that moderate? I I guess I just don't have a have a good reference class for like how quickly economies grow and whether this is, like, uh, an impressive result or not?
1: Yeah, I think there are probably two ways to think about that. One is relative to other estimates of the multiplier effects, sort of public spending or stimulus spending. And so, you know, in, in sort of rich countries like in the U.S., for example, the range of estimates that people, I think, typically are centered around are in the, you know, 1.5 to 1.9 or 2 range. And so this is, you know, bigger than that, but not wildly bigger. Than the sort of stimulus effects that we think federal spending in the U.S. can have if it is well designed. The other way to think about it is just, you know, as a donor, I suppose, like if you're thinking about the the consequences of this, then if you buy the analysis, then you think that in this setting, a dollar had sort of 2.5 the impacts that you thought it would have had otherwise, right, without taking that into account. Fraud in the DRC.
0: Let's talk about what happened in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is – Give directly's biggest fraud case to date. Can you give just the kind of basic outline?
1: Sure. Um, and, you know, let me first just say, you know, we, I think we've written very publicly about this. Um, and so I'll talk about, you know, what we think we've learned from it, how we think we should interpret it in the big picture. But, you know, it is absolutely gut-wrenching to sort of lose that much money. And uh, it's something, you know, where we feel like we, we failed here. And that we owe an apology to the folks involved, to the recipients and to our partners in this project. and And so we've done that and done that very publicly. And I think that's important. In terms of what it means for the mission and the model overall, we feel like there are things we have to learn and adjust. It's going to be about you know less than a percent of all the money that we delivered in 2022, and so you know we accept that this is a chess game that never ends, that we're still playing it, and that we have to make adjustments. But fundamentally, I don't think it shakes our confidence, you know, and our ability to keep doing uh, what we do. So, with that having been said, you know what happens specifically in the DRC is, and you know as you can imagine, there are multiple layers to this, but. The uh, sort of first and fundamental thing is that we have a control procedure that we usually impose, which says that when we give a SIM card to recipients, which is what they need to then be able to start receiving transfers, they need to go and register that with a mobile money agent themselves. And so that's an important piece of our control process. And we made an exception to that in the DRC because the DRC is a tough place to work. And we thought this would have meant long travel and potentially some risks for recipients And so we decided to give our field staff permission to register those SIM cards themselves in the name of the recipients and then distribute them. And so we're balancing risk and return there in terms of thinking about how this is going to impact recipients and what the risk would be. And, you know, the core lesson from this is going to be that, you know, we got that wrong and have to change that this time around. The issue this created was that in this case, some of our staff were able to register SIMs in the name of recipients, but then keep them and instead give recipients other SIMs that were useless because they were not registered in our system to receive transfers. And so with those SIMs in hand, staff are then able to go and collude with mobile money agents to withdraw cash from the accounts that belong to the recipients and get it out themselves. There are then multiple other accountability layers in the system that could have caught this and that did eventually catch it, but that took too long in part because the people who were stealing money at that point of sale were uh, able to recruit Accomplices in those other layers. And so I met this one on for about four months from the end of August 2022 to January of 2023 before we caught it. You know, the design question for us now is, of course, we want to catch it sooner than that if something like this ever happened again.
0: How was it finally um, resolved? Who figured it out?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for some safeguarding reasons, I can't get too much into the details of like what's happened and what is happening. Okay. But, you know, I think what I can say is that, you know, eventually we did hear about it. There's since been wide-ranging turnover, some because people's contracts have just expired, but in some cases because we've let folks go and have referred some of them to the authorities for investigation, prosecution. And then there's a bunch of process stuff that we're going to be doing differently. The first and most important, of course, is you know not allowing this registration exception for SIM cards, um, or at least not unless there are additional controls in place but also to improve the firewalling between the different parts of the organization to make it harder for people to identify and build a relationship with the people that are holding them accountable. And then third, there's some stuff, again, that I mentioned that we can do in terms of automated data checks so that this stuff becomes visible to anyone, you know, even if you're not in the DRC quickly, if something's not happening. Objections to Universal Basic Income.
0: I think the most common ones I've heard are that that it might disincentivize work among recipients. Is that something you're worried about? It sounds like it's not something you've seen in other programs, but maybe it is the kind of thing that you might worry about when there is that long-term commitment.
1: Right. So I think disincentivize is, in fact, not quite the right concept in the sense that there are programs where your eligibility for benefits tapers out as you get better off, right? Like the EITC in the U.S., for example, there's a phase out where if you're earning above a certain level you no longer get it. And so there's a very mechanical disincentive to earn more there. And that's not what we're talking about with UBI, because the whole idea is that it is unconditional on anything. It's like, no matter what, you're going to get this money, right? right? So I think what people actually have in mind here is not like an incentive per se, but more that, you know, maybe you're just less motivated if some of your basic needs are already met to go out and earn more. So it's more of a sort of impact that income or wealth has on your personal motivation, which is a, a somewhat different thing. And that's also very important because, you know, I think, and I think the data also say that those sorts of income effects are actually probably very different in different contexts. And so in low-income countries in particular, right, people are extremely poor. And so getting somebody from, you know, below the poverty line to $2.15 a day is by no means going to make them feel content with their life or as if there's nothing else that they wish they could have. And on top of that, one of the barriers for many of them to work is just access to the capital, right, to the tools they need. And so there's this additional channel where, you know, hey, having access to some money might actually enable me to invest in ways that would make it worth working more. And so what we've actually seen in the data on most cash transfer programs in low-income countries has been, you know, either not much change in how much people work or a bit of an increase, you know, which is contrary, I think, to what a lot of people expect or were worried about.
0: Cool. Yeah, I do feel persuaded in particular about this if you're taking someone just slightly above the poverty line, that feels pretty different to, I don't know, giving them some some high monthly allowance. That means they can not only meet all of their basic needs, but have all the luxuries they want. So, yeah, I can see how someone just meeting their basic needs would not necessarily be discouraged from doing other types of productive work. But I guess before we move on and talk more about the study, I'm curious if you have a guess at what the best objection to UBI is.
1: I think it depends a bit on where we're talking about. So in in rich countries, if you do the math on something like UBI, it's very, very expensive. And I, I think that in rich countries, we have the administrative machinery to target benefits to people who are, you know, disabled, or if you have hit and hit some a shock, health insurance, things like that, in ways that poorer countries have less capacity to do. And so um, I think it's, you know, if you do these sort of technocratic math, it's not as clear to me in some of the richer countries that this would be the best way to spend a dollar to help people living in extreme poverty. In poorer countries, you know, it may be that some degree of targeting or means testing or something like that is a good idea, but the capacity to do that is more limited, and so I think there's a stronger case for maybe it's not universal everywhere, but you know, sort of large regions, for example, everybody getting uh, some degree of basic income, something like that. But I think the other thing to emphasize is that I don't think that UBI is fundamentally a sort of technocratic idea, right? It's not like someone sat down and wrote out the optimization problem of how can we do the most good for the world, and UBI popped out as the solution to that, you know, sort of with a given budget. It's more like this would be a different politics and a different ethics of what we think a just society might look like and something that people might be willing to get behind and, you know, therefore to, to spend or to give more than they would otherwise. And so in some sense, I think that's the real question about UBI. And it's not one that experimental evidence of impact is going to directly answer, although it could contribute to some extent.
0: Right. Okay, and so that politics thing is the idea. There is basically currently we're not thinking of these basic needs as a universal right. The way we think of other things, like uh, it seems like most people in most countries agree that, like you, no one should be able to physically harm you. That's a right you have. And here, I guess another example is like some countries think healthcare is a universal right, others don't, but. UBI is basically saying if people can get behind the idea that people have the basic right to have their basic needs met, and the way of kind of operationalizing that is giving people enough resources to get at least those very basic needs met. Is that the the basic idea? Am I getting that right?
1: That's it. I mean, and so look at sort of how political communication works. Right. Nobody gets up and says, hey, like, you know, great news, I have this complicated plan. We've really thought it through carefully. It's got these five different parts. Healthcare is gonna work this way, all this stuff. You know, this is a great vision for what a fair society is gonna look like. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. But potentially you could say, I have this vision, which is that everybody should get enough to meet their basic needs. And people might support that and be willing to get behind that. And so the idea that this might be a politically viable narrative, even if it's not dollar for dollar, the sort of absolutely ideal, optimal way to allocate a given budget, you know, I think that's very much an important part of the question about UBI.